We are continuing our study in Second Peter, and we're coming to the end of the first chapter. And, and I want you to uh, imagine something with me, and for some of you, uh, this may be a nightmare, imagining what I'm going to ask you to imagine, but I want you to imagine that you're uh, running a race. And not a short race, but a, a long race. Um, one of the things that happened as I uh, first began coming here is that I got duped by Tracy and Josh into running some really long races. And I want you to imagine maybe running that race. And in that race that you're running, the goal is not just to finish, but the goal is to obtain a prize. That that's the whole reason for running. Now I want you to think, all of a sudden in the middle of the race, things change. You get word that this course, this path you're on, uh, really doesn't lead to the end. You don't really know where it's leading. It just goes somewhere. You've, you get word that maybe the rules of the race have changed, and so others around you uh, maybe begin taking shortcuts or uh, various other ways to, to change that, and that there's absolutely no prize at the end. What would happen if this were you? If you were in the middle of this and, and, and things just suddenly changed? You might slow down. You might just start walking and enjoying the scenery. You might drop out. You might just sit down and hang out for a little while. You see, truth matters. And we've been saying this over and over, is that truth means something. Truth matters. And in some ways, uh, over and over again in the Bible... The metaphor of running a race and our faith being a race, that metaphor is used in the Bible. And and in some ways, using this metaphor this morning is helpful because as Peter is writing to us, he's been telling us that we are to run in a certain way, that there's a certain way to run this race. And over and over again, he's been telling us that one of the motivations for running this race is the prize at the end. That Christ is coming back. Christ is going to establish His kingdom. And one of the things that we're facing in this text is that there is a group of false teachers, and we'll look at this over the next couple of weeks. We're not going to jump into the false teaching so much this week. But over the course, what we see is that there's these false teachers and they have denied the second coming. And they are denying that there is a judgment. And so that this leads to living however you want. If that is the truth, then it has implications. And that implication is that you might as well live like everyone else. Today, what we're going to see is that truth matters. And truth keeps us from error. And truth helps us because it determines the course and the rules and the prize And it helps us to know where to lean, where to trust, how to live, and how to strive in this world. You know, this past Wednesday, I was meeting with a group of guys, and um, we have lunch, and right now we're going through the book of Galatians, and we were in Galatians 5, and talking about just the wonderful truth that we are saved not by works, but that we're saved by the grace of God. Apart from works. And, and I was just overcome with just a sense of awe 
uh, you know, and a sense of thankfulness of being thankful to God that that God loves me. That God loves me, a sinner, and that and there was nothing I could do. I couldn't work my way. I couldn't become good enough, but he loved me. Kind of like we were singing this morning. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. What a wonderful truth. And as I was thinking about this, and I, as I was thinking about just what the Lord has, has done, I, I also got to thinking about, man, that, that is a good motivation for living the Christian life, what God has done in our life. And then I thought, you know, what about the whole gospel? Not only is that good motivation, but what about the motivation of that one day Christ is going to come back and that His kingdom will be completely established? And what a wonderful, victorious thought that is. And, and why doesn't that motivate me to live the Christian life as well? It's what Peter this morning, as he's attacking this false doctrine that Christ is not going to return, I think one of the things that we see is that if we don't know and just stand in amazement of this truth, it robs us of something in our Christian life. And that my hope is that as you look at this truth, that all of a sudden it will produce the fruit that we see in verses 5 through 7. That it will produce this eagerness to run this race with faith and moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and in love. But, but I think we get lured away. One of the reasons I think we don't think about Christ's second coming too often is, j- just to be frank, is that it's been so long. That's what we're going to see in a couple of weeks. It's been so long. I was also reminded this week, I was talking with someone, and um, I think they themselves had done this genealogy thing where you swab your mouth and you send it in and you figure out you know, where you're from and all this other kind of stuff. And that's neat, great stuff. My aunt... Uh, has done that for our family and we figure out all these, you know, some good, some bad things about our family. But another thing that I think that it does, and I'm, I'm not speaking negatively towards that, I think that is a great, wonderful thing. But sometimes, because it has been so long, we get lured into this sleep that we've got 70, 80, 90 years. That's just not the truth. God doesn't call us to live in such a way as to think and to walk in a way as if we have 70, 80, 90 years, but God calls us over and over again in the Bible. Christ tells us to live as if His return is now. That we are to live in this kind of way. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't have, uh, you shouldn't save for retirement or that you shouldn't buy a house or those kind of things, but it does mean that those things are held loosely. That our real focus is on the reality rally of who we are and that Christ is returning. And it changes the way we live. If we believe this truth, it changes us. It stirs us up. Now, I want you, as we get into this text, what we're going to see is that Peter gives us two foundations for understanding uh, truth and where this truth comes from so that we're just not left out here making it up as we go along. But I want you to notice something as we jump into verse 16. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. If we were to look earlier um, in the section 
uh, that Bill started with in our reading. Notice this in verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you. 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling. And in verse 15, I will also be diligent. And then in verse 16, we have this change of wording to, for we did not follow cleverly tells. Verse 18, and we ourselves heard this utterance. In verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more sure. And what is going on in this text, and it's important in order to interpret what's going on, that you see this transition from Peter saying I to Peter saying we, and this we is the apostles, are the apostles. And so Peter, one of the things that is, that is front and center here is Peter is talking about truth and where this truth comes from, this apostolic authority, this authority of the, these, these apostles and as they're making their way through the world. And notice what he says, for we, the apostles, did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you. The accusation that is being leveled against the apostles is that the stuff that they're proclaiming, the stuff that they're teaching, the stuff that they're writing, the stuff that they're preaching are cleverly devised tales. Look in chapter 3. Chapter 3, Peter is well into, um, uh, is ending his argument against these false teachers. And notice in verse 3, it says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. I think a modern translation would be, mockers are going to mock. Some of you don't get that joke. It's not very funny. But but that in other words, there are people that are there that are against the apostles and they're mockers. Another translation says they're scoffers. And they're saying the apostles were following and promoting cleverly devised tales. And Peter is saying that is not what we are doing. Peter's laying out why you can trust the apostles. We did not follow cleverly devised tales. And then he's going to go into, we know the truth. Is there ever a more relevant message than the reality that there is truth? We are swimming in a world that says some just crazy things like this. Your truth, my truth. His truth, her truth. What in the world are we talking about? Now, if we were talking about your feelings, my feelings, agree. Your opinions, my opinions, right. But think about the nature of this. Your truth, my truth. And so one of the things that we have to come to grips with and we have to know is that there is a truth, which means there is a source of that truth. And if your source of truth is in this world or comes from this world, then the way you live your life is evidence that that is what you're basing your reality and your truth upon. In other words, there will be fruit to that lifestyle. You will see where your hope lies. It lies in this world. If, however, you know and you follow that the source of truth is from God and his word, then how you live your life, it will be evident that that's where you're placing your hope and your trust. And like I said earlier, these false teachers were looking around. They knew the promises of God. They knew what God had declared, but they're looking around and saying, see, Christ ascended into heaven. 
he hasn't come back. And so what they did is said, okay, so this teaching is, is false. And so they reinterpreted the truth and made a false gospel. And this happens today. This happens over and over in the Bible. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see things happen like this. A, a prophet, uh, I'm reading in Second Kings right now, and so I am uh, uh, neck deep in Elisha and his ministry. Um, and so you will see at times that Elisha may say something, or you know, in First Kings, Elijah may say something. And the king then looks, so they may say, hey, you're going to have this victory. And then the king looks and he sees, oh, these pe- their people are too, too numerous. We'll, we will never defeat them. And so he shrinks back. And in other words, instead of trusting the word of God, we look out at the landscape, we look out at what's going on around us, and we make that our source of truth in which we want to interpret Scripture. And that is not what we are to be doing. We are to trust this word. We are to live by this word. This word is where truth stands. Truth comes from outside of us to us. And that source where we're getting our truth is important. Now, what I want you to see is that Peter gives two two words about why you can trust these things that the apostles are saying, this message that they're giving. And notice... First of all, uh, what he says in verses uh, 16 through 18. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, Bible trivia time. What event is Peter referencing? Transfiguration. Yes, now interesting here. And so what I want you to think about and what uh, commentators and teachers have thought about is why would Peter reference the transfiguration? And I think you're going to see it's clear why. What do you think Peter would reference when wanting to talk about the source of truth and our message is sure? Starts with an R. The resurrection, right? But Peter, Peter in, in combating these false prophets and in helping the people to whom he's writing to strive forward, he gets in and he talks about the transfiguration and he's saying that we were eyewitness. Now here, the we is three of the apostles, Peter, James, and John. They were on the mountain. And just to remind you, um, this account is given in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I just want to read one account real quickly to you in the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 29 through 32. It says, And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. Uh, I think it's Matthew that says, uh, beyond what any bleach could do. Showing the, the, the majestic, the miraculous transformation. And behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. 
And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and the other for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Now, there are certain there are several characteristics here that are very important that we understand and get to understand what Peter is doing. First, Peter is drawing our attention to what he saw. He said we were eyewitnesses of his majesty uh, when he received honor and glory from God the Father. And notice what Peter saw. Peter saw Jesus's face change. He saw light. He saw the clothing become white and he saw a cloud. And all of these things that he saw uh, would be references to Old Testament messianic prophecy that had to do with glory and majesty and the coming Messiah, the prophesied Messiah. And the readers of this text would know that. And the readers of the text would understand that this is a fulfillment of prophetic um, uh, prophetic word in, that Jesus, Jesus was the conquering Messiah. And so when Peter saw him and saw Jesus in that light, he saw something that he wouldn't see again and that he would only partially see. And he would not see this again until Jesus comes back again in his glory. So that the transfigured Jesus looks different, looks different from the Pre-resurrection and post-resurrection Jesus. That Peter was getting a glimpse into something different. Notice the other thing here. Notice the other thing that he heard something. In verse 17, it says that uh, uh, for when he received the honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so what we have here, this utterance uh, to, to a Jewish person, they would also understand that this quotation of what Peter heard on the mountain coming from God was in the Old Testament, according to the scriptures, these same words were used in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 to talk about the coming Messiah. The king. And then the other thing, the other thing of the reason why Peter used the transfiguration here is the context. In all three accounts in, in the synoptic gospels, Jesus, right before the transfiguration, we have the biblical writers talking about the kingdom of God and Jesus talking and answering questions about the kingdom of God. And it's on that basis which the gospel writers then go and give the account of Jesus being transfigured, which leads us to this whole conclusion that they understood in the context of the transfiguration was about Jesus being the prophesied Messiah, Messiah King, who now we know will come back again and establish his kingdom forever. I think the other thing that went on, uh, one one is not speculation, one is speculation. One of the things that we know went on is that the, the disciples, the apostles, definitely um, understood 
this idea that Jesus was coming back or that Jesus was the Messiah King who was going to usher in this this new kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament. Because do you remember in the book of Acts right before Jesus ascends into heaven uh, what they asked Jesus? Is now the time of your kingdom? And Jesus tells them it's not for you to know the date and time. So they knew as they were as Jesus ascended into heaven and as they were going out that there would be a a coming back. I think and we see Jesus speaking of this all throughout the New Testament, and I think it was coming back to their mind. I think the other thing that has gone on is that, you know, we have accounts that one of the things that Jesus did as he was resurrected, as he was with the disciples, that he sat down with them uh, recounting the scriptures and how all the prophecies of the Old Testament pointed to him. And I think it is in this context that Peter, as he thinks about the transfiguration, says, no, this is the truth because I have seen it with my own eyes. We saw it. We got a glimpse of this Messiah King and he is coming back again. One of the things that we know um, is that, uh, and, I, and I forget the word, I should have looked it up in between services again, but uh, the fancy word doesn't matter. But there's this idea when you're looking at prophecy and particularly the prophecy about Christ in the Old Testament. That what the prophets saw in Christ is that if you, were, if you read the Old Testament about the Messiah in the kingdom of God, you get this thing of that it's all, it, it seems like it's all one event. That Jesus comes, He ushers in His kingdom, He gathers His people, and His kingdom rules forever. And the way that uh, people, scholars, talk about this is very helpful. Have any of you ever been to Alaska? I see you raising your hands at home. If you would have been to Alaska and been around these great mountain ranges, from a distance, they all seem like one. They seem very close together. But then when you get to one, you realize the next one is pretty far away. There's distance between them. And and this is how they describe the prophecy about Christ in the Old Testament, that what the prophets saw was this one culminating event. And we, the apostles, as they got closer, what they saw was, oh, This is the first part. There's an already Christ has come and ushered in his kingdom. And then there's a not yet. He is coming again. And this is true. And what Peter is telling us is that this is true. And not only is this true, but notice this in verse 19. So because of this, because of what Peter has seen and what he knows that Jesus is the Messiah King and that He is coming back and that He saw that in the transfiguration. He's saying, so now we have the prophetic word made more sure, which leads us to our second point is that the word of God is true. And Peter, a better way to translate this is um, make more sure or, or a, may, a more sureness And so in some ways, what happens is that Peter, as he's thinking about the transfiguration, he's saying, because of this, because I have seen, because I have heard, because of what we know, because of what Jesus has said, it makes God's word. It it, it doesn't nothing needs to be added to it, but it just makes it more sure, more validated. And that this word, this word, this prophetic word is true. I love verse 19. And I want to point out several things here. So it says, We have this prophetic word made more sure to which you, 
you do well to pay attention. In other words, this is almost like a command, this, this phrasing, you do well. It could almost be an imperative of pay attention to it. And notice the first phrase here, pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in dark places. One of the things that's common in the Bible, light is a symbol of good and darkness is a symbol of bad. The idea that I like here that speaks to my mind, and I don't know if you have ever been uh, in this place, but have you ever wandered around in the woods in the pitch black of night? Not advisable. I mean, when it's pitch black, no moonlight, you know, but just pitch black. It's impossible. It's impossible. I've been running really early in the morning and kind of in one time in particular was in the snow and couldn't see the path and wandered off the path and it was dark and I was like, oh no. Like, you know, what am I going to do? And I wandered around for a while and then when the light came out, I was able to find my way back to the path and get to where I needed to go. And so in some ways, this is the metaphor that he is putting out is that when it is dark, unless you have light, you don't know the path. You don't know where you should be going. Another way that I think about this, and I don't know how your home is, but um, you know, one of the things is that many times I leave the house before it's light outside in the mornings. And so one of the things is I've got to make my way through the house and I don't want to wake anybody up. And so I don't turn on lights and I'm trying to sneak out of the house so nobody gets woken up. And then I stumble over lacrosse sticks, step on Legos, which is, that's not a fun thing. Uh, this morning I stepped on uh, my, one of my children's, I won't give him up, uh, biology textbook that was in my bed that I had to get out of the bed before I went into bed last night. That without light, I'm going to stumble, I could fall, I could you know, cause a disruption. And what this text is saying is that God's word is the light to help us navigate in the dark, the dark ages in which we live. And is there any debate over the reality that we're living in dark ages? And as Christians, we need a guide. We need a light to be able to do this. And without the light, without the lamp, we will wander and we will fall And if we reject this light, for my truth, we will fall away. The second thing I want you to see is that we will need this light. Notice in verse 19, as a light shining as a dark place until, until, and then he talks about two things, really one, but I want to talk about them separately, until the day dawns. And this wording here, the day dawns, um, again, the, the Old Testament, these folks reading this text would know that what was talking about here was the, again, the, the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of God. That this light, this word from God will be needed in this world until, until that day comes. And so as Christians, that day has not come. And so we are in vital need of this light. And thirdly. Thirdly, that we need this light until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now, there have been a lot of uh, commentators who have gone on wild speculation about 
the morning star and Venus and the times of the ages. I think it's way simpler than what they make it. The morning star, again, in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, is, uh, Jesus is considered a, uh, uh, one of the metaphors used about him as a star. And so the, this morning star, the first star, Christ, he arises in our heart. That, that we are to, to use this word until he arises in our hearts. And, and get this imagery, and I think this is so encouraging. It's encouraging to me that when we see him, what will happen in our hearts? Any doubts will be gone. Any fears will be gone. Any struggle as we're walking in this path, trying to stay on this path in the world, will be gone. They'll be replaced with joy and with amazement and love. And I can't wait until that day. I think one of the reasons why we are told to pay attention to the signs is not so that we can make charts and figure out exactly when Jesus is going to return. That's not the purpose for the signs in the, in the Bible. The reason for the purpose of the signs in the Bible is so that we can see a sign and it, it does something to us emotionally where we say, oh, the morning star is coming. The morning star is going to... Jesus will have victory and it encourages us to stay on the path and to walk because we know that one day we won't need the light anymore because he will be our light. Now, again, one of the things we're talking about is the truth of the word, that this is the evidence, that this is where we get our truth is from the word, and that this prophetic word was made more sure, and we do well to pay attention to it. And then verse 20 and 21 are actually very difficult to kind of untangle and to figure out exactly what's going on. And so I want to give you a couple of helpful pointers on how to read this. And then I want to give you uh, my uh, interpretation of this. Um, I think there's some tough things to interpret, but most people agree on what's the, the, the main point. So what I want you to see is that 20, 19 through 21, it's all one sentence. So there's no break. And so an unhelpful thing that happens in the text in the NASB, is that the first word of verse 20 is but, and that there's a period at the end of verse 19. So this is all one sentence, it's all one thought, and so if we read it like this, we'll begin to understand what's going on. So we have a prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention. Knowing, verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So you've got this word, it's made more sure, pay attention to it, knowing, knowing that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. The word of God is true, and although many people try to mess with it, it can't be messed with. It can't be changed, it can't be altered. This is God's very true word. Many try to interpret it. Many try to twist it. But this is God's very word. The, the second thing I want you to see then is so because or knowing that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for the ground for this or the reason for this, because no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so what it is saying is that this word, this word 
And I think Peter is saying two things here. The prophecies of the Old Testament are God's very words. And so you can't just take them and apply them or misapply them however you want because there's God's very, they're God's very word and they are truth. But I also think that Peter has in mind here the apostles' interpretation of the word and the apostles' writings themselves. Turn with me again to chapter 3 in verse 16. Talking about Paul, he says, As also in his letters... Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Notice this, which the untaught and unstable distort. There we have again, people trying to change, distort, uh, to, to manipulate. And notice, as they, all, as they do also to the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. That Peter, very early on, is calling the writings of Paul, Scripture. And so what I think Peter has in mind here is that the prophesied word in the Old Testament, in which we get the prophecy of Jesus, is true. It's God's very word. And the apostles' interpretation, the apostles' writings are God's true, very word. And so the question that we then have to ask ourselves, the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, where are you getting your truth? Now, I think the danger of today is if I would have asked you on your way in, where do you get your truth? Um, probably some of you would have said Fox News, some would have said CNN, and then some would give me some fancy over-the-seas newspaper that reports less biased than whatever news source we're getting. And in making those statements, one of the things that you would talk about is that there are facts, Right? But then there's a narrative that the facts are being put into. You with me? What's vitally important as Christians is that God has given us the narrative. God has given us the narrative. Here's the narrative. God created. The sovereign king of the universe created out of nothing. Worthy of all praise, all honor, all glory. He is so far above us. He created. Man fell. God provided a way. God sent Jesus so that all who put their trust and faith in Him will be restored to God. And not only that, but that Jesus is coming back again to usher in God's kingdom, to reclaim everything so that the world us, the people who are following Him, will be ultimately restored with Him. That is the narrative of the Scripture. And that any time we get away from the narrative, then what we will be doing is taking facts and plugging them into a narrative that doesn't exist. And if we could get this, if we could understand this, how would it change how we lived? If we understood that this is God's very word and informs us of this narrative, not only does it do that, but then because of that narrative informs us how we should live and how we should strive and what is best for us, then how in the world might it change how you live? Without it, we're lost. Without it, like we start next week, Lord willing, we might be carried away by destructive heresies. 
that even deny the master who bought them. I think again to um, running. Many years ago, probably four or five years ago, I got a new pair of trail running shoes that I wanted to try out. And so I go out on the trail and Casey was going to run an errand somewhere and I got miserably lost on the trails. And so I did the the dumbest thing you can do when you're lost in the woods, and that is I wandered off trail thinking, oh, I think if I go this way, I will make it somewhere that I know where I am. I was actually trying to get back to Timberlinks Road. And so, uh, you know, what happens, uh, you know, probably what was actually minutes seemed like hours of wandering around in the woods, and here's this thought, oh no, I'm going to be that guy. And if you've been that guy, I'm sorry, but you know what guy I'm talking about, where the emergency crews are having to come find, and I'm really only like, a hundred yards from the trail, but I never saw it because I'm, you know, wandered off the trail. And then I remembered, I'm literally, I'm thinking, in fact, I pulled out my cell phone and I'm like, oh man, do I make the call? And uh, as I'm looking on my cell phone, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I've got this Maps app. So I click on the Maps app, it shows the road and it shows my little triangle and I start walking and I make it out. Here's the deal. We've got it. We've got it. As we're going throughout this world, as, we're, as we find ourselves in troubled times, as we find ourselves uh, on this path or needing to be on the path, but we find ourselves in compromising situations, we've got God's very word. This is the guide that God has given us to keep us where we need to be and where we need to go. And some of you today are wandering and have wandered off the path. Some of you today are in the race but have taken a wrong turn or, or wanted to take a shortcut or you know, are in a place where you're frustrating. Frustrated. You might be frustrating too. Some of you may be at a rest station just kind of hanging out and you need to get back in the race. I think of two potential frustrations that I think are important that probably many of you can relate to. And I want to give what I mean by have wandered off the path in a very kind of simplistic way. One would be this, and I know that COVID has... uh, Worked its, um, worked its way on a lot of our nerves and a lot of our patience. And that, you know, I can imagine I have heard stories of uh, mothers with kids who um, are just frustrated to no end because they are really trying to be a really good mom to crazy, energetic kids. And they're frustrated and they're burnt out and they don't know where to turn. And what I'm saying is, what if you change the narrative? What if the narrative became, I want to be a godly mom to these crazy kids? Meaning that in our mind, what we have is that we have the narrative of creation, fall, redemption, glory. And that we as, or you as moms, that would be me changing truth, right? We mothers. Um, you as mothers or stay-at-home dads, or whatever, you look at this and you say, hey, wait a minute, my job in raising my kids is to raise them in such a way that they know what matters. 
One of the other things that was great about uh, one of the, the two weeks ago, our Wednesday Bible study meetings, is that two of the dads were talking about we're talking about this very thing, not this passage, but we're talking about fathering in a way that really emphasizes what matters. And one of the things that they discussed is that when you really had uh, God's word and God's truth and what was really on your heart was to raise godly, good ki- godly kids, then the things that you got really upset and frustrated about really shrunk. I was like, man, that's, that's good. I needed, Lewis needed to hear that. So, so maybe... You've gotten off the path and you've accepted the goal of the world to be a good mother or a good father instead of a godly mother or godly father. And you need to get back on this path. Maybe you're in a situation where you would tell me this morning that man work is crazy and it's hard and it's stressful. And I don't doubt that. And so what you're going through is that you're really trying to be productive. You're trying to, you know, uh, you know, put in a good effort and you are stressed and you're worn out. I hear this all the time. What if your goal was to be a godly worker? It may still be hard, but that your aim, your aim, your goal was to be salt and light in the crazy workplace. That as you entered that crazy place, that you realized the reality of creation, fall, redemption, glory, and so what you brought with you was hope. And your hope was fixed on something other than being the best worker you could be according to standards that were ungodly. See, the point that I'm trying to bring home is that the truth matters. The narrative, the true narrative of the Bible matters. And two things I just want to leave you with just real quickly is one, again, I want to reemphasize, without the lamp, you will never see the truth. Without the lamp, without the word of God, you will never see the truth. And number two, and this is just by way of encouragement, anticipate the day. I don't know about you, but as I get, and I know I'm not, I was reminded earlier that I'm not that old, even though I feel really old at times. But probably about five years ago, I got to the place where I just said, you know, I'm ready for the Lord to return. Can you anticipate that day? I think if we anticipate that day and when we look at all the things going on in our world and we see all the craziness that that we there's no better thing to say in our minds and in our hearts than man, we are closer. We are closer. And let that let that just gladness and that longing fuel you in your work, in your mission as you go throughout the day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your spirit. God, I thank you for all the resources you have given us. I thank you for your people. God, I thank you that we are a place that strives to be a people of the word. God, there is such danger in being a people that is not that are not focused on the word, but that are focused on other things, because we we may feel comforted off the trail, lost together, but ultimately the destruction and the doom is sure. God, I pray that you would continue to God help us to be a people who love your word. God, I pray that we would dig deep in it. God, keep us from error. 
Keep this church from heresy. God, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.